Hello, this is Stephen Adams, GC Senior Director in the UK. Uh, it's five o'clock on Christmas Eve, and welcome to a quick debrief on what we know so far about the deal that has been confirmed this afternoon between the EU and the UK with respect to their future trading relationship. Uh, I'm joined uh, on this call this evening by Denzel Davidson. Um, a quick caveat before we start, um, which is that, we're going to give you a picture of what we know so far. What we know so far is based on publicly available information, some of which, of course, is leaked media reports and previous drafts of texts exchanged by the EU and the UK, of which there have only been one major iteration. Um, final texts haven't yet been released. And everything that we're going to say and everything that's in the email attached uh, to, this, uh, to this call um, needs to be taken as provisional until we have final text, which we are expecting um, uh, uh, tonight or tomorrow, and which we will, of course, be going through in detail. Both the British government and the European Commission have published uh, explainer documents, um, which are a useful source of some of the parameters of the deal and its contents, and we'll be drawing on those uh, in our analysis here. But as I say, we are still waiting for published final texts. But with that in mind, um, Denzel, just start us off by um, giving us a sense of how the EU and the UK resolved the three big issues that have been bedeviling this negotiation right up until the last minute. Thank you. Well, uh, Stephen, the three big issues that uh, were a big problem from the start and were only re resolved in the final run were the level playing field, governance and fisheries. And on level playing field, what they've done is that uh, they've dealt with some of Britain's concerns by not requiring dynamic alignment, which was the EU's initial position on state aid, and not tying it strictly word to word for the acquis, and there's no uh, role for the European Court of Justice. And those were some of the key problems from the British side. But the EU's uh, point of view, which was that there's a risk of unfair competition if the UK weren't tightly, more tightly bound than is usual in a free trade agreement to EU standards in social employment, environmental law and on state aid, have been dealt with by uh, mechanisms to ensure that the uh, EU can act, uh, certainly through uh, an arbitrator, if uh, the UK gets an unfair advantage by changes to uh, its laws in these areas. And there seems to be, but we're awaiting the, the final text, uh, a room for unilateral action as well on state aid. And that applies both ways. And that's important for the UK as well, given that the EU, the European Commission is playing an unprecedented role uh, through the recovery fund in supporting the European economy. Uh, on governance, uh, the structure is what the EU wanted. There's going to be an overall, uh, one overall agreement. Uh, there are going to be bodies to coordinate it. There won't be a role for the European Court of Justice although its jurisprudence will be relevant when they're discussing something that is a, a point of, of EU law. Uh, but, uh, and it looks as if there will be some kind of cross-retaliation allowed in disputes. This is something we're going to have to uh, pin down the details on or when the actual text of the treaty uh, emerges. Sorry, cross-retaliation, cross we should just specify cross-retaliation, meaning that if a dispute arises in one sector or subsector, one area of goods trade or services trade, the in any, any linked retaliation doesn't necessarily have to be tied to that particular segment of trade. It can come in other parts, rebalancing concessions in other parts of the agreement. Thank you, Stephen. 
And uh, the last issue is fisheries access, which has been uh, economically not very important for either side, but politically hugely significant. And there we have arrived at a phase in agreement over five and a half years, where it looks like the UK and the EU uh, will adjust current quota shares gradually over that period to a new setting whereby 25% of the EU, of the EU-27's current catch in UK waters goes to the UK. Thereafter, we're going to see annual negotiations, which is what the UK wanted all along, uh, as, it, as the EU has, for instance, with Norway uh, or the Faroe Islands. Uh, but there's going to be some kind of presumption there that uh, the level will stay at, at the readjusted setting of 25% reduction in EU27 uh, EU stocks. And there seems to be some kind of mechanism for the EU to get compensation if that isn't the case. And this is going to be something that is going to be a, perhaps a bit of a stone in the shoe in the future. Yeah, that definitely sounds like something that people should be watching very closely in terms of the politics of uh, uh, of the deal and how it lands uh, in the uh, in in the UK. Okay, so those are those are our three big gateway issues, if you like. The, the issues on which it was clear uh, res completion of a deal would require resolution. And we do appear to have a solution on all three and one that broadly meets the tests of both sides with respect to autonomy over regulation, but some capacity to insist on a level playing field um, uh, for trade between the two sides. As you say, the, the, the question there is going to be what exactly the mechanism is for imposing counterbalancing measures if the two sides are determined to have um, diverged in some way, either through, uh, through a choice by either side, and what exactly Ursula von der Leyen was getting at and Michelle Barnier were getting at this afternoon when they spoke of a unilateral capacity to respond to unfair trade, which, which could, of course, just have been a reference to both sides' right to impose anti-dumping duties and anti-subsidy duties in certain cases, a right which was, of course, confirmed or will be confirmed by, by the agreement. But we don't know, and this is clearly something we're going to need to watch. So if we turn to the, to, to the, to the trade-related content of the, uh, of the agreement, I think the, the most important thing to take away, and it's not a surprise, is that the agreement is, in most respects, a relatively conventional FTA. It mirrors, in many respects, EU agreements with Japan and Canada, uh, which, which, are, which are its two most comprehensive and, and two most modern uh, trade agreements. And, and much of the content of those agreements has found its way into this text. Uh, and indeed, the structure uh, of this agreement looks like it's going to broadly reflect that FTA template. In trade terms, the, the, the headline is obviously the extent of tariff and quota elimination. The deal uh, it eliminates all tariffs and all quotas. And that is unprecedented for an EU trade agreement um, because conventionally the EU carves out a small amount of agricultural trade from liberalization, even in an otherwise very ambitious FTA like CETA or EU Japan. Um, but on um, uh, in this case, because of course that trade was uh, already um, liberalized, um, it's politically not particularly sensitive to keep it liberalized uh, in the new trading framework. So for exporters in the agricultural sector, that's some good news. Um, however, of course, um, for agricultural trade, uh, there will continue to be, um, or there will be uh, in the new framework, 
um, an important new battery of SPS uh, obligations. Um, in fisheries, of course, the implication of 100% tariff and quota elimination is that the EU will impose no tariffs on fish uh, being exported from the UK to the EU, which of course it had, it had threatened uh, to do. But of course, fish coming from the UK will be subject to the EU's conventional SPS regime for fisheries goods, which in some cases uh, is quite complex. So the headline is complete tariff and quota elimination. Uh, that, that's a, that, that is very much the best outcome in this particular area. And it does go further than any previous EU agreement. And in many respects, it was the one big unknown with respect to January the 1st, because much of course of what's going to happen at the border in terms of things like the reimposition of customs protocols was going to happen anyway. The, the unknown was whether the, uh, the reimposition of, um, of tariffs uh, would occur or not. And that was the one big problem that only an FTA can solve. And it has solved it in that respect. However, of course, as always with an agreement based on uh, preferential tariff rates, there will be origin requirements linked to all of these preferential tariffs. Um, goods in both directions will have to, uh, to be able to prove that they are British or of European Union origin, and there will be various ways of doing that. We haven't seen the origin protocol, of course, for this agreement yet, but we would expect it to be a mix of origin rules from the EU's pan-Euromed accumulation framework and from the kinds of customized or bespoke um, origin approaches that it has taken in EU Japan and EU Canada. Um, we've already heard rumors of um, customized or bespoke rules for electric vehicles and for batteries for electric vehicles. Um, but we, we await detail on what exactly that means and how far it diverges from the conventional approach to origin, which is generally to require 50% local content in, in most cases or somewhere in that region. So that's gonna be something to watch out for. It's very important for the UK, uh, for Japanese producers uh, in uh, Sunderland, um, for example. Um, beyond those kind of core tariff elimination um, uh, provisions, probably the most important things to note are some small, um, uh, gestures on both sides with respect to customs cooperation. Obviously, these don't amount to the elimination of customs protocols in either case, um, but they, 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 will be, they will be there from January the 1st. Um, there is a provision for mutual recognition of authorized economic operator status systems on both sides. Again, not unexpected um, and useful in some respects. And there are some provisions on efforts to maintain expedited um, clearance at uh, the UK and the EU's main RORO uh, ingress, ingress points. So that's Kent in the UK and uh, Holyhead for traffic coming from the Republic of Ireland. Um, and some suggestion of uh, moving into future cooperation on a, uh, on, on a more unified um, single declaration system that would allow for import and export declarations to be filed uh, in some combined way. So that's gonna be important and something to, something to watch. Um, something that's not there, there doesn't appear to be any real concession from the EU with respect to mutual recognition uh, and in particular mutual recognition of conformity assessment bodies. In fact, unlike in deals with 
uh, less proximate partners like Canada, uh, the EU appears to have made no concession at all to the idea that it should be possible for UK-based conformity assessment bodies to undertake uh, product conformity assessments for goods traveling to the EU against EU standards. Um, this appears to be an effort just to prevent the UK becoming essentially a conformity assessment hub uh, for the single market. Um, and that will, of course, mean that conformity assessments will need to be conducted inside the EU at the EU's own conformity assessment bodies. There's also no real, as far as we can see, no real movement on mutual recognition of professional qualifications. As in CETA, there is a forward-looking provision allowing for the possibility that the two sides might agree mutual recognition of professional qualifications in certain areas, um, but, but no, no such recognitions embedded in the agreement itself. And it will now fall chiefly to EU member states to make their individual judgments in the first instance about, um, uh, about uh, the recognition of professional qualifications. On road transport, uh, there is an important agreement uh, on the capacity of UK and EU hauliers to travel point to point between the two markets with some allowance then for additional cabotage or other operations inside uh, each market to ensure that they have cargoes for the return journey. But that's the, th those, are the main, um, those are the main provisions in terms of goods as far as we can tell. It is probably just worth Denzel saying a little bit about non-tariff barriers beyond the ones that I've just mentioned. Yeah, so the Prime Minister at his press conference uh, said that there would be no non-tariff barriers. Uh, and he was picked up on this by journalists and they were right to do so, weren't they, Stephen? Uh, well, they, they most certainly were. Um, I don't quite know why the Prime Minister would have made such an observation. Uh, clearly, non-tariff barriers exist even inside the single market. And uh, certainly in this case, uh, questions like the duplication of um, product standards uh, and conformity assessment requirements uh, mean that non-tariff barriers are going to be a permanent feature of the trading relationship from this point on. And clearly uh, the same applies in areas like professional qualifications. And it will of course apply in services uh, as well. And may maybe just on that, on services, I mean, the, the deal is, as expected, very limited in terms of services content. It, it, it follows the conventional model of modern FTAs with respect to services, which is to essentially lock in an element of the current third country treatment extended by a jurisdiction. So the EU has essentially guaranteed a large component of its existing treatment of UK businesses operating either through commercial presence through investment through fixed investment in the single market or in some cases trading into the single market from outside it where that's permitted if it's a non-regulated activity or a regulated activity that's covered by a cross-border framework which is which most of them are not for regulated activities and of course the exemplar of that latter problem is financial services um, where the deal does as expected um, and as far as we can see very little and, and in fact in many respects does less than the UK's agreement with Japan um, uh, signed uh, six weeks ago. The main difference um, is on the lack of, or the apparent lack of ambition or the lack of specificity about ambition uh, on regulatory cooperation. And in particular 
with respect to the possibility of developing modes of models of trade based on um, mutual reliance or deference. So essentially allowing trade to, to trade in the in regulated financial services to take place on the basis of home authorizations as opposed to host ones. The UK, of course, wasn't looking for, or rather had had ceased to expect uh, much from the EU with respect to new trading rights based on this kind of approach, this, 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 this difference approach, which is of course the EU's internal approach. Um, but it had been hoping, I think, for content in an annex that would commit the two sides to cooperation on regulation, on considering ways in which they might adopt difference in the future, and putting some limited structure around the way in which the two sides would handle existing judgments in areas like equivalence. And the, the EU has, it would appear, rebuffed all of those things. There is no, there is no content to that uh, in, in that respect. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a relatively conventional FTA uh, for, for services and for financial services with relatively little uh, beyond what the EU has already agreed. Um, finally, I, on data, um, the, the, again, from what we've seen, the, the agreement uh, follows most modern FTA precedents in its uh, provisions on ensuring freedom to transfer data between the two jurisdictions, uh, prohibitions on data localization requirements in both jurisdictions, but in both cases caveated, of course, by the requirement that parties meet or firms inside parties meet data protection uh, requirements and privacy requirements for personal and sensitive data. And that, that of course, means that cross-border data transfer for those kinds of data um, in this context will be restricted in, until or unless both sides adopt adequacy, adequacy uh, decisions for the other. The UK has done that for the EU, but we, we wait for a possible adequate decision from the EU between now and the end of the year. So that's the content. Um, Denzel, just say a bit about what we ex expect to happen next in terms of ratification. Thank you, Stephen. Well, uh, on the British side, ratification would be relatively smooth. Uh, we expect Parliament to be recalled to vote uh, through this agreement, uh, probably on the 30th of December. And given the government has a strong majority, given that Labour look like they're at best at worst uh, going to abstain, uh, and uh, this will sail through the House of Commons, and uh, there is no majority in the House of Lords either for a period of uh, a no deal relationship. So this will get through uh, perfectly well. Uh, on the EU side, uh, one thing this agreement has done is that it has immiserated permanent representatives uh, to the European Union since Christmas morning because they, poor souls, are going to have to meet to discuss uh, the next steps on ratification. Um, uh, I think uh, they'll see the steel's a bit of a uh, poor substitute for Turkey. But uh, what they are going to uh, do then, it's expected, is uh, agree that there should be provisional ratification. Um, what's been said out is that this provisional ratification will only last for two months. That'll mean that there'll be no cliff edge, uh, no gap between uh, the current uh, state of existence of being in the single market and the new relationship. Uh, but what this does is it gives time to uh, the European Parliament to scrutinize the deal, uh, time for it to ratify it and, and to complete the EU's ratification and to make that uh, approval meaningful, 
the European Parliament didn't want to look as if it was being asked to simply be a rubber stamp. So um, there's some cunning interinstitutional footwork there to uh, preserve the European Parliament's dignity. But uh, what we should expect is therefore a smooth passage uh, in, uh, in legal terms from uh, the current status quo to uh, the new relationship. And it may well be, but it's not uh, uh, finalized, at least in what's been said in public, that this will be an EU only agreement. And that means that national ratifications and in Belgium's case, uh, Flemish and most infamously Walloon ratification will not be required. And that will make the whole process much easier. And of course, in some ways, that's testimony to the relative narrowness of the agreement, um, because it's managed to stay within the boundaries of uh, exclusive competence, e even uh, uh, the, the, the slightly expanded um, boundaries of exclusive competence as they were reset by the, the Lisbon Treaty. So, okay, Denzel, give us your, give us your, give, give us your one quick take then. So uh, this is, uh, for the future UK-EU relationship, much better than no agreement, but it doesn't mean that the future relationship is settled. In a positive sense, this agreement provides hooks uh, for it to be built up, particularly perhaps in services, uh, in areas of, of mutual uh, recognition. So this may be a low point from, things, from which things get better. But in another way, while we have uh, the rules for how the relationship is going to work, that's just the skeleton. We don't have the practice, the flesh, uh, and that's going to be how they actually behave on level playing field, whether they are quick to uh, trigger retaliatory uh, clauses, uh, whether the UK side is going to want to do something that does look like um, cutting standards to increase competitiveness. And so until that works out, uh, we won't really know what the new relationship feels like or exactly how stable it is. And then of course, in five and a half years time, we have uh, the new state of being on fisheries access, and we've already seen just how difficult it is for people negotiating on mackerel quotas right up to the edge of Christmas, of the evening of Christmas Eve. So uh, there is much more to look forward to in watching how this relationship develops and what new opportunities and new concerns there are for businesses uh, that straddle, straddle the British and EU economic spaces. Yeah, let me guess one 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 other final observation, which is just in in how to read this agreement. It's it's important to read it like you would you would read any trade agreement, which is that essentially what it does is 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 set out the things that the two sides commit to doing, either not doing or doing. And what that does mean, in particularly in areas like services, is that the fact that something isn't explicitly allowed in the agreement doesn't necessarily mean that it's not allowed. What, what, what the agreement does is essentially set out what the two sides guarantee will be permitted. And that is gonna mean that for businesses, of course, while this agreement is important because it will tell them essentially what rights are guaranteed. Um, and in some cases, of course, it will also be very clear on things that aren't permitted. Those are the two things the deal does. In many respects to know the precise nature of rights in the EU market in the future, and indeed in individual EU jurisdictions where national governments still have a say in determining uh, market access, as they do, for example, in some areas of financial services, it will be necessary to go beyond this deal and look at the detail of national legislation or EU law as we do for any other market in 
the world. So the, the, trade, the trade agreement is an important overlay. It signals very clearly what will not be permitted. It tells us what the two sides guarantee to provide in terms of market access and regulatory treatment. But as so often, a big part of the detail will be in the domestic regulation of both sides and what it, and what it permits in terms of third country access. And of course, third country access is the new world in terms of these two jurisdictions. Okay, so um, there's a bit to digest there. There's clearly going to be a lot more to digest in the days ahead. As I say, Denzel, my analysis here is based on publicly available information. It's not based on a close reading of the texts, which haven't been published yet. They will be published in the days ahead. And we will, of course, be digesting those just as clients will. Um, you can expect more from us in terms of analysis and as always for clients, um, even over the Christmas period, if there's things that worry you, things that aren't clear, don't hesitate to get in touch. And perhaps if I may, I would finish just by observing that for many of the people listening to this, this has been a four-year journey plus with Global Council. Um, and it's, of course, uh, it, it's um, it's been a constant source of anxiety and um, uh, required a level of strategic planning across those four years. Um, but we have at least arrived at a deal today by the, by, the, by, the, by the looks of things that will provide some certainty on January the 1st. And that's got to be good news and something of a Christmas present for all of us. So with that, uh, until the next time, happy Christmas and all the best to all of you. <laughs>